You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Uh, Revelations 2, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the church in Smyrna, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The, only, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Y escribe al ángel de la iglesia de Esmerna, el primero y el postrero, el que estuvo muerto y vivió, dice esto. Yo conozco tus obras y tu tribulación y tu progresa, pero tú eres rico. Y la blasfemia de los dos que se dicen ser judíos y no lo son, sino sinagoga de Satanás. No temas en nada lo que vas a poder ser. He aquí el diablo achera a algunos de los voceros en la cárcel, para que seas probados y tendrías tribulación por diez días. Sé fiel hasta la muerte y yo te daré la corona de la vida. El que tiene oído, oiga lo no que el Espíritu dice a las iglesias. El que venciera no sufrirá daño de la segunda muerte. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, all right. Well, what I want to do is I want to begin with a series of questions for us to consider this morning. They're these. What is wealth? What makes someone rich? What does it mean to be winning? Hashtag winning in life. You see, these are really important questions to consider, especially in a year where we're exploring this theme of identity. And here's why I believe it's important. Because a large percentage of our population, ourselves included probably, we have attached our meaning and our value to our net worth. What we own, how much we make, what's in the bank, those sort of things. And sadly, for many of us, we measure whether or not we are winning or we are losing in life based on what we have achieved or earned, a certain financial goal, a certain certain educational goal, a certain career goal, what we've obtained, what we have gathered in our lives. Put simply, no matter how saintly you think you are, your identity is probably somehow tangled up into your wealth all wrapped up in this messy ball that is us. And so in order to uncover who we are, and in order to uncover what we are becoming, it means that we need to wade through questions like this. What makes us rich? What makes us rich? Now, this is a very subjective thing. Rich, being rich, being wealthy is very subjective, and it's subjective based on the economic structures that exist wherever we may be. For instance, in a society that is based on capitalism, like us here in America, wealth is attached to what? Money, that's 
what it means to be a, a, okay. So wealth is attached to money. But think about other parts of the world, patriarchal societies, where wealth is now not really so much attached to money, but it's attached to children and lineage and heritage and legacy and honor and these sort of things. There's also places in this world that operate on a barter system. And wealth is determined by tradable goods. You got something I need, I got something you need, we're in business. Wealth, riches, it's a very subjective thing. And the fascinating thing is that you can be wealthy somewhere and impoverished elsewhere based on how wealth is being defined there. To illustrate this, Michelle and I have, uh, well, it just we just watched all the episodes, but we've been watching a show uh, about these families that live in this remote part of Alaska, Arctic Alaska. It's called like the last Alaskans or, not, or something like that. And so it follows the stories of these families that are surviving in the wilderness. They're living off the land, the animals and that sort of thing. They're like really roughing it out in the woods. And they're interviewing this family that finally brought down a moose. In this part of Alaska, if you bring down a moose, you're set because it means that you and your family have meat for the rest of the winter, and because it's so stinking cold, it's really important that we, you, you, you build up protein and fat and that sort of thing. So they bring down this moose, and they're interviewing this woman. She is extremely dirty and, like, bloody, and she's sitting in front of a rickety old cabin, and she's being interviewed, and she chokes up, and she says, I just feel so rich right now. I just feel so rich. I feel so grateful. And as I heard that, it struck me that you can be poor and rich at the very same time. But the opposite is true as well. You can be filthy rich and extremely impoverished at the same time. We see this illustrated later on in the letters. We'll get to this one in about a month. The, the, the letter to the church in Laodicea. This is a, a, a church that was wealthy by all earthly standards, had a lot of material goods, and yet he says, you are impoverished. You're poor. And then the opposite is true. As the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthian church, he describes this existence of having nothing and yet possessing everything. Think about this statement, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Well, that's strange. That's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? What does that mean? Well, as Jesus explains in this letter to the church in Smyrna, there is a way to live richly wherever you are in whatever situation that you find yourself in. In fact, there is a way to be defined by a richness and riches that will not fade, that will not perish, that will not spoil. A sort of richness, a sort of wealth that will not ebb and flow with the global economy or the the job market or the stock market or this and that index or that sort of thing, but a wealth and a riches that is sure and steady. And this is what I hope that we will discover today. I've titled this morning's message, True Wealth, My hope, my prayer, is that we would see through God's word what it means to be truly wealthy and that Jesus has welcomed us all into that existence. Amen? All right. This letter follows a very similar pattern that we see all throughout the rest of the letters. And the general pattern looks like this. It begins with a reminder about who Jesus is. It's followed up by an encouragement to the church about what's going 
well in the church, followed by a warning, and then lastly, a promise, a reminder and encouragement, a warning and a promise. So let's begin, first and foremost, with the reminder. Now, one of the things that I, one of the many things that I love about these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 is Jesus' intimate understanding of each city and their very, very unique stories that are attached to these cities. Smyrna, specifically, was a very prominent city in, in this portion of Asia. It was rich in natural resources. It had a lot of trading power. It had significant uh, political alliances. In fact, this city that we're reading about this morning competed with Ephesus for the title of first in Asia. First in Asia, meaning that it was a place of prominence. And they, 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 they held to this name because they were really early on to, uh, they were really early to align themselves with Rome before the Roman Empire essentially took over that, that portion of the world. And so they were known as the first of Asia. And this was a city that was well-connected to power and wealth. And also, another really interesting thing about this city, a part of the history that Jesus seems to be acknowledging here and alluding to, is that in the 6th century BC, so about 600 years before this letter is being written, the city of Smyrna was destroyed. It was brought down to essentially rubble. And it sat desolate and dead for about three centuries until the third century BC when it was rebuilt as one of the most beautiful cities around. So think about the connection here. It's destroyed, it dies, and in three centuries, it's raised again. And many people likened the history of Smyrna to the, the, you know, the myth, uh, mythological creature, the, the phoenix that rises from the ashes. So think about that backdrop, think about that history, keep that in mind, and now hear these words of Jesus, once again, reminding the church of who he is. Look at me in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. See, he not only knows his people, he not only knows the current state of the church, but he understands their city. He understands their collective story as a people in all of the ways that the people of God are shaped by the city that they live in. And whether we like it or not, this is true for us as well. We are shaped for better or for worse by the city that we live in. We are shaped by the city of Stockton. Churches begin to take on the personality of the city around us. So I want to illustrate this with two examples that I've seen in this church, positive and a negative example. The positive example is this church, and I would say churches in Stockton, generally speaking, have some serious grit. Word. I like that. Um, Stockton as a, as a whole has just endured a lot of stuff, and this is a city where people stick it out. And they just, there's, there's like a true, deep down grit. Here's the beautiful thing that I've seen in our church. The church has got grit. Guys, we have seen some stuff. <laughs> Anyone who's been here for a few years knows we have seen some crazy things. And, the God, and God has used, I think, the grit of the city to shape us in the same way. But the negative thing that comes along with grit, I believe, is stoicism. See, 
Stoicism is essentially grit with a lack of emotions. Stoicism says, I'm going to endure, but I'm shutting down my passion and I'm shutting down my emotions in order to survive. And Stoicism lends itself towards apathy and indifference. Not only does our city, I think, generally speaking, have a sense of Stoicism over it, but that is something that trickles into our church, trickles into our lives, trickles into my life as well. We've been shaped by the grit, but also the apathy of our city. And so as people and as a church, we take on, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we take on the character of the city around us. And yet, here's the beautiful news that Jesus, I think, is alluding to here. Jesus reminds his church of the greater story that we're a part of. And that we're not ultimately defined by the success or the failure of our city. We are ultimately defined by the power and the victory of Jesus' resurrection. Can I get a word? Word. You can introduce that into your vocabulary. Now, sometimes cities are thriving, and sometimes cities are floundering. That's up for you uh, to determine where we find ourselves in that equation right now. But despite those details, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is always at work among us. Jesus is always rebuilding where there's brokenness. He is always healing where there's hurt. Jesus is always breathing life into dead things. And if you look back at history and scripture, you see historically the work of God always seems to be most present in the most broken places. Compared to all the other major religions in the world, Christianity seems to be the one that doesn't have this like one centering place that brings it all together. We don't have our Mecca. We don't have our Jerusalem. Why? It seems to me that the kingdom of God seems a little bit allergic to the powers that be. Anytime Christianity starts to align itself with the powers that be, it leaves the room. It shifts. It moves. It's constantly on the move, constantly moving towards the margins, constantly moving towards those who are most broken and most neglected in our world. What does that mean for us? It means that it doesn't matter how well connected you are in our city. And it doesn't necessarily mean, it's not really, it doesn't matter if you find yourself an influential person or a, a nobody, whether you are embraced or you are rejected. Because if you are a child of God by faith, you are a very well-connected individual. You are very well-connected to the healing power of God. You have the ear of the king. Who else can say that? You have access to the wealth of a generous God whom the Bible describes as owning the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds pretty rich. <laughs> you are the heir to heaven and now the steward of his resources. He put your name on the account. He gave you a debit card. You're in. It's ours, not because we've earned it, Here's the beauty of grace. But that position, that place is now something to be received as a gift through faith. 
This access, this wealth is ours now because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now the transforming power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us and in our city through the Holy Spirit. That same access, that same wealth, that same power is ours to access and now steward for the welfare of our city. I think, wow, that's the power of God right there, guys. Be ready, it's coming. Jesus is essentially saying, you're impressed by the city? You're impressed by all these powers that be? They ain't got nothing on me. Because I died and rose again. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. Amen? All right. Secondly, the encouragement. We looked at the reminder of who Jesus is. Let's look at the encouragement. Now, every year on MLK Day weekend, I try to read through a different uh, Dr. King sermon from during his life. And I was reading this morning through a portion of one of his sermons titled The Drum Major Instinct. And, and this is what I read. He said, our first cry as a baby was a bid for attention. And all throughout childhood, this impulse or instinct for attention is a major obsession. And then he goes on to say, and the need only grows into adulthood. Simply put, we are some needy people. Desperate for attention. All the way, all the way dating, all the way back from that first cry that's saying, please look at me, please pay attention. And the point is this, everyone is looking for someone that's looking for us. That's what we're desperate for. Isn't that what we're seeking? Someone that cares, someone that knows, someone that sees us, someone that acknowledges our life, someone that will simply like validate our experience and say, you matter. Someone that sees, someone that knows. And not just the basic details of our lives, but like the deep areas of our lives, our joys, our pains, our hopes, our fears, our dreams, our passions, and even our sin. In fact, it's profoundly encouraging when there is someone that is willing to know us on that sort of level and care about us. When someone sees us, even the deepest parts of our lives, and is unwilling to turn away in disgust and run. But the truth is, it's costly to know someone well. Think about that. Think about how costly it is to know someone on a deep, deep level. It requires attention, which we don't have very much of in the 21st century. It requires care, which seems very thin and worn down. It requires patience, which I, I can only speak for myself, I lack. It requires all these things to know someone and their story. It, it requires emotional maturity to be able to helpfully bear someone's burdens, especially when they've got a lot of mess in their life. And because we are such limited individuals, so limited in our lives, our time, our energy, our resources, all that sort of thing, we can only really know a very small amount of people on this sort of intimate level. We, we can only know just a handful of people really really deeply. And so, because of this limitation that we all have, and because of the fact that we live in a society that values people based on their accomplishments and their successes, it's what you call a meritocracy. So the combination of being limited people that live in a society that values people based on their successes, 
what ends up happening is that the people who are considered important are shown a certain level of care and concern, and those who are considered less important are often neglected. Think about it. That is why you probably know more about the lives of celebrities and sport athletes and social media phenomenons than the person down the street. Oh, Prince Harry and, and Meghan, and oh, their little nephew, Archie. What a cute family. And we, we know more about these people out there. And then we look down the street, and we have no idea what's going on. Why? Because we're limited in what we can care about, and we're limited in our resources, we're limited in our attention, and we focus that limited care towards people that we think are important, and we neglect the people that are not. So think about this, and this is natural. This is what we all do. And so think about this radical reversal that Jesus initiates here in verse 9. Look at me, verse 9. I know, I see, your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, when a young man or a young woman in our society is talented and driven, people will often say, keep your eye on them. They're going places. Keep your eye peeled for so-and-so. Jesus is saying something completely opposite. No, he says, I'm keeping my eye on these. Not those who are winning at life, but those who are losing. The hurting, the afflicted, the neglected, the rejected. Jesus knows, and his eyes are on those whom he can raise from the ashes as testimonies of his life-giving, life-transforming work. Jesus sees, he knows, he's near. And when Jesus says that he's the first and the last, this is a, a major claim here of Jesus, by the way, because he's likening himself. He's making a connection between him and the God of the Old Testament, the first and the last. And there's one specific example of where this, this reference is found in, in, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 41, that's pretty profound. And, and it says this. This is the Lord, Yahweh, introducing himself to his people. He says, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Now, there's something subtly different here that we see. The Lord, Yahweh, doesn't just say, I am the first and the last, but what does he say? I am the first what? With the last. So if I'm reading this right, we see the, the, the prominent one, the important one, is darting to the back of the line to be with the least of these. That's who I'm with. It's really interesting, in, in our economy, those who are winning typically unite with other winners, and we call it the good old boy club. In the economy of the kingdom, the first associates with the last. And I have to imagine this would have been deeply encouraging for this church because the church in Smyrna, by all earthly measures, they were, they were coming in last. I mean, simply put, they were losing. They were in severe tribulation. Because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ, they were being excluded from earning and trading and doing business with much of the Roman uh, population. And then on top of that, we, we read about 
those within the Jewish community, not all of them, but a small remnant within the Jewish community who were slandering them and persecuting them. And so this was a church that was without comfort. They were without financial stability. They were without a good reputation. They had lost it all for the sake of Jesus Christ. It was all gone. But then Jesus is reminding them of something. And what he's reminding them of is this. You have something that they can never take away. They took your money. They took your connections. They took your reputation. But you've got something that is sure. You have me. And if you have me, you are forever rich. Listen to the words of the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, listen to this, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time going on to say, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now that was a mouthful, but let me put it simple to you. Stop living for dead presidents and live in to the living hope that's been offered to you through Jesus Christ. Because unlike that money in your pocket or that money in your bank or that money on its way, this inheritance doesn't fade. For the child of God, you are not defined by the wealth that you hold today. You are defined by an inheritance that is being held for you in eternity. And what Jesus is saying is attach your worth and your identity to this. Because your money does not have the strength to carry the weight of your soul. It will break and break you under the weight of it. You guys still with me this morning? Okay. Let's look third at the, at the warning. At the warning. We saw the reminder, the encouragement. Third, the warning. Look at me in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, unlike the warnings that we read about in most of the other letters in the book of Revelation, Smyrna's warning is not a rebuke. It's not a rebuke for something that's going wrong. This is not a letter of correction. There, there's nothing explicitly stated in this letter that the church is doing wrong. But he's still warning them of something to come. And I think this, this thought is, is wildly important for us to embrace here. And it is this, that suffering isn't necessarily judgment for wrongdoing. You're about to suffer, but there's no mention of doing something wrong. You can be doing it right and still experience bad things. I hope they told you that first, by the way. You can be doing it right and still experience bad things. 
As I mentioned earlier, uh, there have been seasons of this church where we have faced some really hard things, not to the degree that Smyrna faced, not at least yet, but relatively difficult things. And if I could be honest, my natural inclination in the moment of heat, in the moment of difficulty, is to think automatically, what did we do wrong? Where to go wrong? Who's messing up? Like the Old Testament, like, where, where's, is there sin in the camp? Come on, what's going on right now? Let's uproot it. Let's deal with it. Let's fix our wrongs. Let's make sure we keep our nose clean. Make sure we're staying on track. This is not exactly how it works. The Bible tells us that the righteous suffer. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered. The Bible tells us that the church will suffer too. In fact, as commentators point out, when Jesus says, don't fear what you're about to suffer, as one commentator pointed out, this word about to, he says, has the overtones of destiny, which means suffering is not a matter of coincidence. Matter, suffering rather, is a matter of destiny. It's not just some sort of happen chance, some random thing that happens just floating around in the, in the atmosphere of this world and we just happen to bump into suffering. No, he's talking about the destiny of the church. You will suffer because I suffered. This is your destiny. When the church suffers, they shouldn't only be asking what's gone wrong. Maybe they should be asking what has gone right. And let me illustrate this in the book of Acts. The very early stages of the church, the apostle Peter and a couple of other disciples and apostles are sharing the gospel of Jesus, and it landed them in prison. And not knowing what to do with them, the religious leaders end up just like beating them and letting them go, and they say, drop this whole Christianity thing and just get out of here, stop. And one of the craziest thing hap things happened on their way home from prison Acts 5, 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're essentially asking themselves, what did we do right? We must be moving in the right direction because we are getting beat down for it. Our mission as a church is to make disciples of all men and women. Being a disciple, we believe, means following Jesus, learning from Jesus, and ultimately becoming like Jesus. And I, I take my role in that process pretty seriously. I want to do what God's called me to do in preparing you as a church to face whatever that's going to mean on the journey towards in the journey of discipleship. And what this letter is really forcing me to do today is to take that call to like its extreme edge. And it is challenging me to prepare myself and you to be willing to follow Jesus all the way to the point of death. And what it reminds us of is that the question of Christianity isn't just, are you willing to live for Christ? The question of Christianity is, are you willing to die for him? And really the question beneath the question is, he worth it. What led 18-year-old Catherine of Alexandria to leverage her influence, forfeit her freedom, and surrender her life to convert hundreds of men and women to Christianity in the fourth century? 
What led 23-year-old Magdalene of Nagasaki to surrender to the authorities and publicly declare herself a follower of Jesus, knowing that it would cost her her life in the 17th century? What led 28-year-old Jim Elliot to risk his life to minister to an unreached and dangerous Ecuadorian tribe in the 20th century? And on and on and on. They and countless others determined for themselves that Jesus was worth it. And friend, you have to too. You are in an impasse, and your future is before you. And we need to determine together that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here is the key to upward mobility in the kingdom of God. Here's the equation for upward mobility in this economy, and it's this. Loss today equals gains in eternity. You grab a hold of that right now, and your life will be changed forever, I promise you. Loss today, gains in eternity. Across today, and glory to come, the road of suffering, and the path to glory. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's look finally at the promise. The promise. Every year, uh, I listen to the movie, The Polar Express. And I say listen because typically I'm in the front seat driving or in the passenger seat as the kids are in the back watching Polar Express. And uh, essentially, Michelle's car is where all of our family DVDs go to die. It literally has the last DVD player in our home. And so typically around the Christmas season, sure enough, Polar Express is played when we're going to visit family or that sort of thing. And there's a moment at the end of the journey, spoiler alert, they make it to the North Pole. I know. And the train conductor gets out this little hole punch thing. If you've seen it, you remember what I'm talking about. And he gets out this little hole punch thing. And he begins to punch these like single word statements in each child's ticket. And it's actually a really profound thing because they're not just arbitrary words. They're not just like random words. They're one single word that helps define that child and to like move them forward in their destiny and what they're called to be, what what they're becoming. And so I think the sort of single word message, the in our ticket, uh, in, in this closing exhortation to the church is this one word, persevere. Persevere. If we were to hang on to one word, it would be this word. Look at me in verse, uh, the second half of verse 10 into 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, The one who conquers 
will not be hurt by the second death. After a decade of listening to your guys' life stories, and I'm sure many to come, of challenges and overcoming of faith and doubt, of trial and victory, I've become, I've come to believe that essentially the key to success in the Christian life, if I can make such a bold statement, the key to winning in the Christian life is found in this word, persevere. You want to win? Persevere. And I know that's not very anti, I guess it is very anticlimactic, isn't it? You want that one word to hang on to for the rest of your life, and persevere is not a very, like, shiny, sexy word. But if I'm reading this right from the words of Jesus, this is what brings the crown. This is what brings the W. And this is how we overcome. Conquering is not a matter of killing it in life. Conquering is laying down our lives and pressing on in the hope of the promise that we're going to be raised with Christ. Conquering is holding on to that hope that while we face death in this life, that life awaits us in Jesus Christ. And the promise that Jesus gives us is that there's a crown of victory awaiting every single person that crosses the line. No matter how graceful or how ugly it looks getting across the line. Some of us are just going to sprint through the line. God bless you. (laughs) Some of you are going to run. Some of you are going to walk. Some of you are going to do a little power walk. And many of us are going to have that ugly crawl on the ground, just barely moving forward. The crown awaits us. And the victory awaits us. Reality, who are we? But the child of God, we are those who are overcomers. Reality, who are we? We are heirs to the wealth of heaven. Reality, who are we? We are those who stand in the victory of Jesus' resurrection. Reality, who are we? We are those whom Jesus will crown when it's all said and done. So let me conclude where I began. What does it mean to be rich? What does it mean to be winning? How do we discover wealth? And there is, in fact, a way to live richly wherever you find yourself in whatever circumstance and situation you find yourself in. And here it is. Here's the secret. We need to live into the, king, into the economy of the kingdom of God. And this is an economy that is very different than the economy that we function in anywhere else in the world. This is an economy where gain comes through losing. Where winning comes through receiving, not achieving. And ultimately, this is an economy where we lose our lives to find it. And so in conclusion, let me read the words of Tolkien, who put it way more creatively than I ever could. He says, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. 
A light from the shadow shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time.